Hello and welcome to episode 390 of the Fabulous Pelton Cast, sponsored by our friends at Pagliacci Pizza. I'm your co-host, Kevin Pelton. And I'm Tristan Carzino. And we are coming to you from Renton, Washington, home of the Super Bowl 48 champion Seattle Seahawks. Oh, it is the Steve Entman edition of the Pelton Cast. Also speaking of the Super Bowl 48 champions, the Jay Reed edition. Speaking of the last time that the Huskies were undefeated this far into the season. That is, that is correct. They are 10-0 for the second time in school history, unbeaten and untied. So they don't have to worry about that much, that much anymore. But back in the day, you could be like 9-0-1 at this point, I suppose. 8-0-2, 7-0-3. Still talking over there? Okay. <laughs> All right, we got a lot to get to. Important to clarify that there could have been ties back in the day. <laughs> Maybe we should start the podcast for a third time. <laughs> people forget. <laughs> it's important to remind people that they could have tied. <laughs> there used to be a time. In the 91 season, remind- what were the overtime rules? I mean, they were they were what they were up until, I think it was like 96 or 97 that overtime came into existence. So and there the were ties in, in 91? The Huskies tied at some point during the Jim Lambright era. They tied USC, I'm pretty sure. Huh. In like 94, 95 in that range. So, like within my memory, the Huskies have tied games. Okay. So, all right. Well, we do have a lot to get to this week. So let's start with the return of our search for Seattle's wow. best IPA after now that uh, hashtag fresh hop season is over. And now that oh, I've okay. actually gotten around to actually purchasing it, one of the IPAs that we have left on our list because it's dwindling the number that we need to get to. But this is an important one from our friends at Silver City Brewery, Brewery in uh, Silverdale, Washington, the Tropic Haze IPA, a seemingly magical reaction between a specialized yeast strain, oats, wheat, and a special hop blend helmed by strata results in a blossom of rich tropical fruit flavor that is a feast for the eyes with a silky smooth texture and clean finish wow all right i don't know if i've ever described it as a feast for the eyes but i do like the branding of tropic haze which is very similar to the miami vice heat uniforms yes absolutely it is when we should toast here off the top to the pelton cast discord we should it's popping if you're not on the discord uh, you're going to share that link again in the not on Twitter. Um, <laughs> I mean, it's still there on Twitter. If you go to Feltoncast Twitter, that's the that's the most recent tweets. It's not going anywhere. Uh, but yes, in the post notes on SonicCentral.com uh, as well, we we posted. Uh, I guess it's no longer on Instagram because that was a story, so it disappeared a long time ago. But maybe I'll repost it at some point. Maybe a grid post, Randy. But you can't link in those, mm. so it's not as useful. Randy Maybe just a link ju- in bio. Okay, Randy just joined the Discord. <laughs> uh, we still need to get Chris Smith on there, so we have he all four talking Taco Time co-hosts. You'll never get Chris Smith on that Discord. The only Discord he knows is sewing Discord in the back of the East End. So. <laughs> there was no, there was no Discord said. By I just Chris. I said it so perfectly. You did, you did. We'll talk about the experience in the East End Zone that you were not a part of last Saturday. Later in the pod, but for now we got to get to this week's toast, and we have a number of them, including a bunch of baseball ones. The other thing we need to toast to involving Randy is his first-person story on Eater Seattle. That was incredible. And as told to 
That was a beautiful thing. So we knew that this was going to, this story was coming, but we had no idea it was going to be, you know, narrated by, in Randy's voice. No, that was awesome. My favorite thing about it. Rainier Tallboy for scale. Oh, wow. It's in uh, the it's, Seattle Eater. It's it's canon now. I mean, that's like, the Peltoncast has gone prestige. <laughs> I don't know if I'd go that far, Mm-mm. but yes. Gone prestige. The Pelton cast specifically got a shout out in there. I don't know if talking taco time may have been mentioned in the co-host he, that I was. He was the co-host, but uh, the I'm Pelton, pretty sure it did. I I was described as host of the fabulous Pelton cast. My taco time talking taco time <laughs> co-host was not mentioned at all. <laughs> but anyways, if you haven't checked that out, that also is linked in the post notes. So be sure to check it out. All right, congratulations to Kalen DeBoer on recording his 100th win wow. as a head coach at all college levels on Saturday in his 111th game. <laughs> Would be nice. 111. What a record. Like, look, it's one thing. You know, wait, I forget which of the North Dakota's schools he was coaching at. Sioux Falls, I think, maybe. Okay. That's Not like state. one thing. But, you know, to be now, what was the record last year? 21-2 and two yeah, in 23 games. But also Fresno in State in there as well. Power like, five, yeah, yeah. It's it's an incredible run. Fresno or Fresno State. Kalen DeBorch is good at winning football games, which is a good thing to be good at. We'll talk more in the pod about the potential of an, an extension for Kalen DeBorch uh, in the wake of that, and in the wake of uh, Texas A&M firing Jimbo Fisher and going looking for a new head coach. Uh, next up, congrats to NFC Special Teams Player of the Week, Jason Myers, who kicked five field goals in the Seahawks win on Sunday, including the game winner as time expired. Really, entirely- Active coaches near a 750 winning percentage. Kalen DeBoer is number one, of course. There you go. Well, is that... No, you know who else had, had a really impressive the, the, winning look percentage? Look at the people around him. This is the... Kalen DeBoer... The head coach of Ferris State, <laughs> Delaware Valley, St. John's, Minnesota. How far do you think you have to go to get to another Division One school? 11th? No, nobody on this list. San Diego? Like, we are talking. Kalen DeBoer is in a territory unto his own. You know who coached San Diego, by the way? Who is that? Jim Harbaugh. I remember that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Chris Peterson had a really amazing record as well. Uh, in between them, Jimmy, like, not such a, an amazing record. Although after his first season as head coach, he was undefeated. There we go. Uh, yeah, Chris Peterson in his time at UW ended up being a little bit or hurt no, he by that. When he, he came, first three games. when he came over to UW, Chris Peterson was the winningest coach in college football history. Yeah. That must have been FBS. Keelan DeBoer's though, win right? percentage is almost 900. Yeah. Which would make him the winningest coach other than Larry Kiris, who is Mount Union's coach, coached, uh, uh, was it Pierre Garçon, uh, from 1986 to 2012. He is the second winningest coach in college football history. Well, there you go. All right, let's get into the baseball section of our toast here. Unless you have any more stats on Kaelin DeBoer. No, I'm just, I'm so shocked. I mean, Chris Peterson's winning percentage is pretty nice also. Yeah. No, can't complain. Many people did, though. Uh, congrats to Julio Rodriguez, named an AL Silver Slugger for the second consecutive year. Those also being the only two years of his MLB career. Congrats to Stephen Vogt, hired as Guardians manager after one season as the M's bullpen coach. You already teased this, 
the only MLB manager that we have ever tailgated a UW football game with in Pitt Alford. That we know of. (laughs) Scott Service could have been there. You never know. Look, there there were some days back in the day. I didn't know who was around us. (laughs) Well, fair. There are photos taken of us with people that I have no idea who they are. The famous cousin Katie definitely had some days where she doesn't remember. Well, and also... Maybe she's an MLB manager? No? <laughs> no. Yes? Okay. No, no, no. Not currently an MLB manager. Congrats to Seattle's own Blake Snell, who won his second Cy Young Award with the San Diego Padres, having previously won the AL Award with the Tampa Bay Rays in 2018. On the AL side, Luis Castillo finished fifth in the voting, while George Kirby was eighth. And lastly this week, this is one we missed when it actually happened uh, two weeks ago. Farewell to Nelson Cruz, who announced his retirement earlier this month. Cruz spent four of his 19 MLB seasons with the Mariners from 2015 through 2018, accounting for three of his seven All-Star appearances. The most recent of those came in 2021 at age 41. Nelson Cruz was still an All-Star. Cruz hit a career-high 44 home runs in 2015, which tied the most ever by a Mariners player not named Ken Griffey Jr., Cruz is the only Mariners player to hit 40 home runs in a season since 2000, doing so twice. So, even though we were not paying much attention to the Mariners at this point, Nelson Cruz still certainly broke through, and we were well oh, aware I love of his exploits. No. All right, one quick note before we get into the roundup. You mentioned this on the Discord, even if it was in the wrong channel. It's Lil Woody's Fast Food Month. There we go. And right now is week two, the little Big Mac. Truly a classic. Is the little is the so this is the same the same schedule as basically the last. They've got the crunch wrap, the Big Mac. Let's talk through this whole thing. So right. We, I don't already... want to yada 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 Lil Woody's fast food month because honestly, I feel like that's what they're kind of doing right now. They're not yada yada yaing it, but they're uh, 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 they're busy in Japan. They're doing they're all over the place. We need innovation from Lil Woody's Fast Food Month. I don't, I don't want them to just rest on their laurels. We've had these burgers, but also these are kind of like the classic burgers. Like, I get it. At the same time, it is so readily available, the initial burger, doing Lil Woody's version of it. We already talked about this. I want more. I, I know how you feel. Yes. What, what did we what did we workshop last year? Like a Toshi's uh, burger? Well, we I think that did get mentioned, but I thought what we decided on was a Arby's beef and cheddar, the little beef and cheddar. That would be huge. <laughs> we we did workshop. That, that would be big. Year. Like I I just want a little bit more variation. I get it; they're popular, they sell well, or whatever. But maybe we do a second fast food month throughout the year. We're trying out secondary foods. I thought the taco time, crisp burritos, maybe logistically was a little bit of an issue. But like I see this and I'm like, yeah, I mean, I kinda I kinda done that, right? Fair. I'm I'm still always excited to try the classics. Okay. Uh, except for the Crunch Wrap Supreme. That I could I could probably do without. That's uh coming up next week and then the last week of November will be the Woody's style in and out double double. No, do they do that every year? See, this was I think they have done that before. I don't remember what the schedule was last year specifically. I actually kind of thought that was an interesting one. I mean, of course you do. When we did our Pelton cast uh, burger at Lil Woody's, it was basically it had no a relation. Double-double. No relation. <laughs> Animal style. Uh, I had an actual sourdough jack. You heard me on the phone as I was going through the drive-through. 
That's correct. I did not hear you eat the uh, sourdough jack. So good. I have to say. It's a quality. It's a quality. No, sourdough jack is like sourdough jack up is, there. It's basically just a patty melt, right? Uh, no. How is it different? Well, uh, is a patty melt just a burger on sourdough bread? I mean, it's basically, yeah, pretty much. I don't. I mean, maybe maybe uh, some scholar could tell us some difference beyond that about it. No, see, a patty melt is like a grilled cheese, but with a burger patty. This has like the tomato in it and the sauce. I think I do not think they share relations, but like I would not say that. Okay. Anyways, it's great and. I do feel bad I missed out because the the uh, Lil Woody's curly fries are always a favorite of mine when they do this. And when they did uh, uh, tater fries to go with the crisp burritos, that was also a highlight. Bro, low-key, I'm like, damn, maybe I should be eating patty melts more. Perhaps so, yeah. There's there's a spot in L.A. that's like very famous for their patty melts that I went to uh, one of the locations of one time after a Lakers game. So I don't remember that because it was many years ago, but... Well, you can look it up, I'm sure. Nice, good podcast. Yeah. Should we get into the roundup? I also was in L.A. this last weekend and went to... Oh, yeah, we have... What? We haven't really talked about your L.A. eating that much. I I wouldn't say uh, it was, like, that notable, but went to Grand Central Market. And this time... So I've... I've only walked there before. I've never taken a car there. Mm-hmm. And I've walked there and ended up on the side that the egg slot is on, right? Yes. And I have never walked all the way through to the other side before. Oh, wow. Which is kind of wild. You, you just saw the egg slot and we're like, I'm good. No, but there's other stuff over there. Like, I've eaten the things on the one side, but I've never, like, fully I think there's some explored. tacos on that side that I've had. I'm pretty sure. It was great. I ended up having, God, it's called, like, Wexler's Deli. Oh, yeah. It was, I mean, I, I had that as a breakfast sandwich, a pastrami breakfast sandwich. You and then I got, attention. I saw, they had all the, all the like, like classic deli sandwiches. And the word that intrigued me the most was my two favorite words in the English language. Russian dressing. Oh, yes. There you go. Oh, my God. You know me and you know my feelings about Russian dressing. So, I mean, our feelings, my feelings about Russian dressing are the same. This reminds me that the place we still haven't gone here is the sandwich seattle outpost oh i was actually thinking about going there a couple of days ago i didn't go to it but i'm sure it's outstanding so the the wexler sandwich i saw it oh my god so it was breakfast time and i was like i need to have breakfast uh so i ended up getting the big papa pastrami egg cheddar cream cheese served on a bagel and you know what i did i was like can i get a side of russian dressing with that <laughs> and i dipped every bite into Russian dressing, it was 15 out of 10. Incredible. Wow. Wow. Yeah, no, it was excellent. Uh, had some home state tacos while I was down there. They were good. The home state tortillas are unbeatable. Unbeatable. Unbeatable home state tortillas. Uh, and then what is the, the, um, the donut place that's in the Grand Central Market? I don't think I remember that off the top of my head. I'm pretty sure I've been there at some point, but I I don't remember the name of it right now. As you search for it, and they're I called the fill- Donut Man, and I do feel like the Donut Man probably not wouldn't be Seattle's best donut, but they are very, 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 very good. They would be in that conversation. Oh, I I love them. I mean, every time that I've been there, I've had donuts from there, and they are always excellent. 
By the way, I saw that we talked a couple weeks ago about Top Pot offering donut holes, and they're like having a contest on Instagram to name them. In aren't they clearly? Shouldn't they just clearly be Top Potholes? Okay. Well, maybe throw that in the mix. You're saying that like nobody else has proposed that. I I'm sure. You I'm sure people many have people have. That's why I don't. I'm surprised it's even a competition. You want them to be called Top Potholes? Yeah. Top Potholes. Yeah, I mean, I get that the competition it doesn't sound isn't great. That, that appetizing, but you know. <laughs> the pun works more than the appealing nature of purchasing a product. That's so if fair. that's what you're going for, if that's goal number one is a good pun, then yes. I mean, But if you want people to actually purchase the product, like if I were to go there and I'd be like, hey, can I have some top potholes? I don't, I don't know. I'm not I sure about that one. I think you'd understand the context. I, I understand the context. All right. Okay. <laughs> Anything else on food? Uh, no. All right. Let's get into the roundup, starting with the Mariners. Some sad news the other day. This doesn't necessarily mean the end, but the Mariners did designate Mike Ford for assignment to make room on their 40-man roster ahead of the Rule 5 draft. Wait, so we're sad about Mike Ford right now? Yeah. Okay. I thought I was waiting for the word Haggerty to come up. <laughs> you were like, some sad news. And I was like, oh, God, no. And then you were like, the Mariners designated. And I was like, no, did I miss this? And then you were like, Mike Ford. And I was like, I didn't say okay, it was I'm tragic news. Waiting. We would lead the pod. That would be an emergency <laughs> pod if they designated Haggerty. Kept for waiting for the sad news to come. I mean, I, I guess that's, I don't, maybe my feelings about Mike Ford are not as strong as your feelings about Mike Ford. I, I mean, you know, he started a lot of games last year, hit a lot of home runs. Wow, really? Some positives. He started a lot of games for the playoff not participating Mariners? I mean, look, I know that I grant that he there was... He is a baseball player. A lot of people started a lot of games. I grant that there was a lot of, you know, side factors in this. He was as good last year as Carlos Santana was the year before. He didn't have as many clutch plays as Carlos Santana I agree had, with that. And that's what matters. He also did not inspire the smooth intro to Verde's Hot Takes. God, that was awesome. He's an all-timer. Uh, Jerry DePoto at the GM meetings super spreader event talked about the murder's needs. <laughs> what? <laughs> did you not hear about this? No. The, the, everybody got COVID? No, they didn't get COVID. They got a, some sort of stomach virus. People are sick out there. I'm just going to throw this out there. <laughs> no, the, the United States of America is <laughs> ill right now. <laughs> Well, like, and not in the Beastie Boys way. <laughs> I, I agree with that assessment. It is definitively not in that way. Uh, we feel really good about our young left-handed bats, and we feel really good about our players up the middle and our overall power productivity. Now it's just a matter of trying to fill in the gaps where we might be a little more, bit more flawed. We have a pretty good offensive team that sometimes struggles with contact, and we're going to have to try to solve that. So, uh, as we'd already Sometimes talked about. struggle, literally historically bad at strikeouts. As we talked about. Sometimes struggles with con contact. Uh, look, you know, being very diplomatic. Uh, they're looking for a right-handed hitter with more contact ability than Teoscar Hernandez, who can play either the corner outfield or corner infield, and then also potentially DH. This is the player on the Mariners' wish list. This uh, 79 games for Carlos Santana, 0.4 offensive war, 0.5 overall war. In his time here, Mike Ford, 83 games, 0.6 offensive war, 0.8 war overall. I'm just saying. Zero inspiration. Did not have the same name as one of the greatest musicians of all time. So, 
Uh, my ESPN colleague Jeff Passan had his preview of free agency on ESPN.com earlier this week. Here's what he had to say about the Shohei Otani free agency. The expectation among teams evolved is that Otani could move relatively quickly, perhaps even before the December 4th through 7th winter meetings, according to sources. Also said, the notion that the Mariners will pay top dollar for Otani simply is not real at the moment. Uh, although he did mention them as a contender based on their residence in Japan, if that's a draw for him. So the Mariners aren't signing Shohei Otani. That's what it sounded like. <clears throat> sure who, who were the teams that Jeff Pazant thought Shohei were, were likely to sign Shohei? Uh, Dodgers, Red Sox, and he mentioned he mentioned the Rangers. I, I don't know if they actually have the money to sign Shohei Otani, but I do not see Shohei signing in fucking Texas. So, and he mentioned like he even threw out the possibility of him re-signing with the Angels, which seems unthinkable to me. Now, here's an interesting thing that Passan also mentioned in this, talking about the trade market. Mention the Mariners is a possible option if the Padres decide to move Juan Soto to shed salary ahead of his final arbitration year. Uh, the Padres, very deep in hitting, in need of pitching, in need of cheap pitching, in need of controllable cheap pitching. And guess who has a lot of that? Your Seattle Mariners. I mean, that would be a huge boon. Uh, Juan Soto, I think he's actually been kind of underrated in San Diego since he got there. Uh, not as huge numbers as he had in Washington, but also I believe he led baseball in walks last year. On-base percentage was ridiculous last season. And if there's one thing that the Mariners could use is a player in the middle of their lineup who gets on base and is not striking out all the time. I agree with that. Yeah, that would be that would be very nice. I mean, if you would have asked me, like, obviously price tag is not cheap for Soto. But if the Mariners could pick up Soto for a young, controlled arm of some kind, that is, I mean, it's... And it might have absolute, to be a little more than that. It is the that. absolute best possible move that the Mariners could make, maybe even including Shohei. I don't know if I'd go that far. Well, Shohei, there is a... Shohei is probably not likely to exceed the value that he has paid, if that makes sense. Yeah. Whereas Juan Soto has a good chance of meeting or exceeding the value that he's paid for the season that he is in Seattle or whatever. Yep. He finished second in the NL in on-base percentage at 410. I mean, that, that would be very nice yeah. for the Mariners to add. You put that ahead of Julio in the lineup, that'd be good. I'm a fan. So I, I mean, Juan Soto was one of he was considered basically the best young player in baseball two, three years ago. And I again, I think basically after the Washington trade or after the trade to San Diego, he's been a little bit lost. But like. This would be a massive move if it happened like th this would be a playoff odds franchise altering move if the Mariners acquired Juan Soto. He's led the NL in walks each of the last three seasons. So there you go. I, I I will say I would be happy with the Mariners if they were not in the Shohei sweepstakes, but they picked up Juan Soto for a pitcher. So here's what I was thinking was everything that we've seen about this, this MLB offseason and this hot stove league is pitching and starting pitching in particular is going to be at a premium. There are a handful of arms out there. I don't think the Mariners are going to be in on any of them. I don't think we should. And Cody, of course, Blake Snell. And literally Blake Snell coming off winning the Cy Young, almost certainly not going to be back in San Diego. Like, that Padres team could be due for 
I mean, we're talking five and a half wins, like 35 homers. Getting Soto would be fucking incredible. It would be. I agree. I, I think people forget just how recently, like he was number two in MVP voting in 2021. His career trajectory is not necessarily that dissimilar than like Bryce Harper or somebody like that. I think Soto has become underrated over time. Uh, but so if, if the, if the most important thing in free agency, obviously bats are important, but it does seem like all of the teams that have money that want to go acquire a player are looking for starting pitching. And then you turn around and you see a team that has an excess of starting pitching has a ballpark and a history of developing young starting pitching, especially under team control. Somebody like, I don't know how many years does Logan Gilbert have left of team control? That's a great question that I do not know the answer to. You can to look it up here. But Logan Gilbert or somebody like that, I mean, even Bryce Miller, right? Brian Wu, Emerson Hancock, all of these players, I think, are expendable for the Mariners, knowing that Robbie Ray eventually is going to be coming back, that, that Marco Gonzalez is going to be coming back, and they have a good rotation on top of that. They have superstar pitchers beyond there. They have Luis Castillo, who finished, I think, fifth in Cy Young voting, and George Kirby, who is better than Luis Castillo for much of the season. So with those, those factors at play and the demand in the market for starting pitching, to me, somebody like Logan Gilbert who is experienced starting pitching, he, he at the major league level has been a number two pitcher or whatever, and he has team control beyond this, he should be near the top of the trade market around the MLB. Yeah, I agree. So, And it's something that the Mariners, they could withstand losing somebody like Logan Gilbert if it meant bringing a bat back to the team because that's, what they, that's where the need is, obviously. So Gilbert has four years of arbitration before four becoming years? a free agent in 2028. I mean, it's it's going to be an expensive arbitration. Like, yes. it's not cheap necessarily, but still, four years of team control for a starting pitcher is a massive thing to have. Yep. So I again, like I said, if you were look, literally we saw trade value rankings. I think there's a reality that Logan Gilbert, who is in the trade value rankings. But like you sort of wipe away all the players who are never getting traded, because that's there. There has to be a reality trade value rankings. Well, George I Kirby's mean, not getting traded. One of the guys who was at the top of the list last year was Juan Soto. Yes, exactly. That's what I'm saying, though. Like, if you can turn around and trade for somebody who was at the near the top of the list last year, because the Padres are in a difficult financial situation, and because he's now closer to free agency, so his trade value is lower. Juan Soto is 24 years old that's three years younger than logan gilbert right enough. like it is or two ridiculous years maybe ridiculous just how young juan soto is and if the mlb wants to if they want to lower their their trade value perspective about juan soto if he is available for a salary dump and it doesn't require all of the best prospects in baseball you go and get juan soto right yeah I mean, again, He's who knows you, what you trade Logan Gilbert and Emerson Hancock for? Who knows if they're actually going to do, make this move? You know, mm-hmm. there's a lot of lot of questions. But I, I guess even beyond Juan Soto, like when you get to basically you wipe away the top like thirty or forty of trade value. Juan Soto was 29th in last year's Fangraphs trade value rankings. Logan Gilbert was 33rd. I mean, could be an interesting swap. 
But so, like, most of these players are not getting traded, right? When you look at this. Yes. Almost everybody in the top 30 is just not getting traded for one reason or another. They're either a way too valuable prospect, right? Like, I mean, the top five, like, never... In a, it would be an instant hang-up if anybody called about any of those players. And so, like, when you get to the point of these players could actually be moved is probably in that Soto-Logan-Gilbert territory. Yes. Right? So, Logan-Gilbert, there is a world, Soto as well, that these are two of the number one trade value players because ranking trade value like this is just like, I mean, great, I guess. Like, it's great to know where Julio is, but there's a reality that Julio is not getting traded. And even if the even if a team offered number one in trade value, if it was Ronald Acuna, I, I, there'd be a conversation, obviously. But like, if it was one of those players for one of the other players, like it just wouldn't happen. And the team would be like, we're fine with what we've got right now. So when you get to Logan Gilbert, that is a massive amount of trade value. And it is an expendable position for the Mariners. So this is what they have to do. Because they've told us they're not spending on Shohei. We know that. They're not going to be spending on Cody Bellinger. Like, the, they're not going to go out and spend on free agents. This is where they need to make it happen. And it needs to be for elite-level hitting. It can't be for a good hitter. It has to be for elite-level hitting that you can drop in this lineup. That is how you transform this organization, and, and you get the higher end of the 54%. I know there are some 54%ers out there, or whatever, who believe in what Jerry DePoto said, but the reality is he's talking about that over a long period of time, and right now when you have this good roster, this good core, you have to be closer to 60%. Maybe 57. Whatever. But like you have to be pushing that number to be able to allow yourself to have some lower ones in the future to even out to the 54%. And this is the moment when they have to go exceed the 54%. I was thinking about the Mariners today on the low post because we were talking about the Timberwolves and you know, kind of the situation that they face where they're in this weirdly all-in season because their payroll is going to explode next year with Anthony Edwards' extension, Jade McDaniel's extension, and Carl Anthony Good Towns. Good on Jade McDaniel's. Yeah. That's awesome. I feel like you had a negative, more negative response when I put it in the toast a few weeks ago. About uh, Jaden? Yeah. What about what did what were we just like? Oh, you're toasting, you know, all this money or something. I, I don't know. I, I forget what it was. Huh. Carl Anthony Towns Supermax extension kicks Duff in. Duffman says a lot of things. <laughs> <laughs> all text, Tristan. <laughs> they basically have to make a move. So they're all in on this season, kind of with this group. When Anthony Edwards is 22, and what I was thinking to myself in my head was Anthony Edwards is the timeline. He's the timeline. Just like Julio is the timeline. And the Mariners, I think, are wise to slow play it a little more than they did not rush out and make the Rudy Gobert trade of baseball. The baseball equivalent of that. There's just no baseball equivalent of the Rudy Gobert trade. Oh, I think there's some baseball equivalents in the contracts that were handed out last summer or last winter. You think so? I mean, like you're not giving up all your draft picks for years. Exactly. So, a contract in a league that doesn't have a salary cap just cannot equal the Rudy Gobert trade, and that draft picks don't matter at that same level. That's fair. Although the issue for the Timberwolves is not necessarily the cap; it's the luxury tax, which is a thing that exists in baseball. All right. Anything more in the Mariners? Let's get into the rundup. Down, starting with the Kraken, just when it seemed. They might be stabilizing. They lost back-to-back games to Edmonton and Colorado by a combined 9-2 scoreline at home before on Wednesday night, allowing the tying goal in the final minute in Edmonton and going on to settle for a point with a disappointing overtime loss. Uh, We're now past the one-fifth mark of the NHL regular season, and the Kraken sit 10th in the West standings, 
albeit in two more games than the two teams directly behind them. The underlying analytics still suggest about an average team, but uh, the Kraken have not performed to that level thus far. They're back home Thursday to host New York before playing at Vancouver and then at home through Thanksgiving weekend. Also, I did not know whether it's the Rangers or the Islanders. I just put New York. Okay. Scholars are divided on the issue. Uh... I saw somebody in the Discord saying that the Kraken should be removed from the from the rundown. They should get Husky soccer treatment. <laughs> Husky men's soccer treatment and be like, you have to earn your way onto the rundown, sir. I think the fact that people are still talking about the Kraken on the Discord is an indication that uh, I haven't heard a lot of you to men's soccer talk <laughs> on the Discord. Start the channel. <laughs> uh. All right, Seattle Sounders are on to the MLS Western Conference semifinals after completely controlling the winner-take-all Game 3 of their series with FC Dallas. Was it fun or no? I mean, I was not watching closely on the second half. That's MLS playoffs, baby. (laughs) Not watching closely. It wasn't for lack of interest. I will will say that. Uh, But, like, Dallas basically just had no offense in this game. They had one shot attempt and one cross coming in the 88th and 89th minute, respectively. One cross. Or, sorry, wow. one quarter, I should say. They, had, they probably had some other cross. I was going to say, damn. I, I, I wrote cross in the notes. <laughs> like, my intramural soccer team from <laughs> Thai High School that got together at UW, that team was not good. Uh, well, you were on it. Inter- intramural co-ed soccer at UW. I you, think that you, we had one cross in the game. You really we didn't st- have a corner. You really struggled with the handball rules. That's I did have a constant, lot of handballs. Constant issue for you. Were you there the one time that I... You came to some of those games, didn't you? No, I don't think I ever did. I got a handball, but they didn't call it, and so everybody stopped, but then the other team scored when it happened, and then I yelled at the ref, and I was like, I handballed, and then they were just like, we didn't see it. Or were they playing advantage? Harsh truth. Harsh reality. By that point, the Sounders had been almost untouched since taking a one nothing lead through Albert Rushnak in the 36th minute. Uh, Dallas did not record even a tenth of an expected goal. Joel Paolo bossed the game from his midfield spot, including setting up Rushnak's score with a through ball while the Sounders recorded their 16th clean sheet of the season. Next up for the Sounders, a rematch of 2019 and 2020 playoff matchups against LAFC. Both of those won by the Sounders. Because of the international break this weekend, that game won't be played until the Sunday after Thanksgiving. Convenience as the Seahawks will play on Thanksgiving Day. Won't be played until 2025. (laughs) Uh, they really like the COVID break. <laughs> They're just going to drop a couple of those in. This always happens. It always happens with both the MLS and the NWS MLS playoffs. Uh, after it was some, a thrilling first round. So we need to pause for a few weeks. After some angst over Captain Stefan Fry being angst. out of contract like Nico Ladero, he's agreed to a two-year extension through 2025. According to Sounder at heart, the Sounders all-time leader in appearances, now third in MLS history in regular season clean sheets, and after last Friday's match, tied for second in the playoffs in clean sheets and second in goalkeeper MLS Cup wins. All right. So a fixture, certainly. Uh, You're really big on angst lately. (laughs) I I am, yes. Uh, So this ties together our next two sections. Sportico reported last Tuesday, shortly after our last pod, that the Sounders are in advanced negotiations to purchase the rain. From OL Group. This is news to Tristan. What? Bring it on the pod. <laughs> is everybody else aware of this? Yeah. Okay. Long time ago. <clears throat> uh, Timbers and Thorns currently the only shared MLS NWSL ownership. Uh, Sounders majority owner Adrian Hanauer had been a minority investor in the rain prior to their purchase by OL. And 
like this was a logical outcome, I think. Of so they're going to go back situation. to Seattle Rain again. That would seem likely. The OL thing was kind of wild. Like they, I think they bought the team with the intent of moving them or leveraging them to move them. Tony Parker se- certainly seemed to think he was going to move them to Miami, and then they just kind of didn't. Like what happened? I mean, I don't think that the NWSL necessarily wanted to vacate what's been a pretty good market and now is, you know, one of their strongest markets, I would say, especially with a team that's been very successful. Yeah. So there was probably a bar to clear there. Oh, this is awesome. So we'll see if they they probably will not move the Washington Spirit to Miami. <laughs> that seems unlikely. Are they? Do they own the Washington Spirit? Yeah, that's why they're selling the rain is because... OL. The Washington... What actually happened is the Washington mm-hmm. Spirit owner... Michelle King purchased uh, OL Feminine, the women's team. I see. So that's now the partnership rather than the partnership being with the rain. So uh, we knew this was coming. I mean, obviously, this ensures the team stays here. I think there's a lot of benefits that can potentially come from shared ownership. Obviously, there's some concerns about, you know, the rain being relegated to a, a, you know, kind of a second tier status among the organization. But I, I don't think that's a major issue. No. Yeah. So we'll see. This still has not been made official, or we haven't heard any reporting on it since the Sportico report. But the rain fell short in their quest to bring an NWSL championship to Seattle, losing 2-1 last Saturday against Gotham FC in San Diego. And really just the worst possible start to this match. Like, basically, as soon as I got in the door after the Husky game on Saturday night and flipped on this game on CBS, Megan Rapinoe goes down with a non-contact injury all by herself. And we sort of all feared what what she said uh, after the match. We haven't heard an update since that I've seen, uh, but said after the match that I probably tore my Achilles. Jesus Christ. In the third minute of the match. Limping off the field to end her career, watching that game from the sidelines. Is there any comparable situation? I guess, well, no, Kobe had the injury, but then had the monster game to end his career. Yeah, he came back from the Achilles. Like, he was never the same player, but, you know, he got to finish his career on his terms. Has has this ever happened that you could think of where one of the greatest players of a generation ended their career Injuring themselves in their very last game. I mean, there are some situations where players' careers were ended due to injuries. Isaiah Thomas retired due to Achilles injury. But it wasn't like, I planned to retire. (laughs) And then then was in the championship game. Yeah, literally like... In the third minute. Like, oh, it's just so brutal to see Pino on the sidelines through the rest of this game. Uh, the sound, the rain did have a match to play after this. Lynn Williams opened the scoring for Gotham FC in the 25th minute, set up in the box by Midge Purse. The rain answered to equalize within four minutes as Rose Lavelle beat their offside trap for an uncontested goal. An apparent Jordan Heidema goal late in the first half was called back for offsides. And then Gotham, Gotham FC quickly followed with a powerful Esther header off a of Midge Purse set piece. Not a lot of chances in the second half before an Elise Bennett header was handled by Gotham FC k- keeper Mandy Hot outside the box, deep into stoppage time, resulting in a red card in VAR and a free kick from just outside the box. Because Gotham FC was out of subs, they had to put midfielder Neely Martin in goal, but she was not tested as time ran out on the rain, and they fall to 0-3 all-time in the NWSL championship game. Whew. All right. So it is definitely a like this Friday is my last day type situation. 
you're comparing yourself to Megan Rapinoe. No, 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 no. Oh. Like, like you're going to retire from the force and then you, <laughs> you end I up see. being shot two days before you're about to retire yeah. or something like that type of situation. Uh, <clears throat> that is a harsh realm. Yeah. So obviously get well soon to Pino. You know, there's not the pressure to come back and play soccer, but one of the things that often I think gets forgotten in situations like this is, look, you rupture an Achilles, it affects your real life, not just your ability to play soccer. And, you know, all the plans that she surely had for enjoying her retirement. Walking and stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, some news relating to the rain. Laura Harvey was passed over for U.S. Women's National Team job. Is another Englishman woman was appointed manager of the U.S. Women's National Team, Chelsea manager Emma Hayes. Uh, the other bit of NWSL news ahead of the final, they announced a new broadcast deals, set of new broadcast deals worth $60 million per year, replacing their current deal with CBS Sports worth $1.5 million. Whoa! Yeah. It's a real moment for women's sports. That is awesome. So CBS Sports will continue as a partner along with ESPN in the mix, ION, which has been televising WNBA games, and Amazon Prime Video, which uh, has been broadcasting a variety of sports, including the NFL. And, and That's WNBA. awesome. I mean, so that tells me two things that are happening here. Number one, that uh, CBS obviously has the stats on these games. Yes. They're getting ratings. Certainly the ones they're putting on national TV, including the final, yeah. Number two, there is a demand for live sports that are not necessarily at the level of paying billions of dollars or whatever, right? You're like major college footballs, your NBA's, NFL's. Like there is a demand at the networks for live sports in a price point that is like a good amount of money for the league but not necessarily a billion dollars. Right. It's not breaking the bank for these uh, broadcast partners. And it's going to be very interesting to see what this sets up for the WNBA broadcast negotiations coming in. I think the deal is up in 2025, I believe. I, I do think... And the WNBA generally rates better than NWSL. Oh, yeah. No, I, I assume that it's going to be a pretty significant deal. WNBA is like on the map yeah. now. It's It's taken many, many years, but the WNBA... This generation of players that they've had uh, and the excitement surrounding them is like, plus with Caitlin Clark coming, like, it is, WNBA is in a very, very prime position. Well, speaking of women's basketball, UW women's basketball improved to 3-0 with a pair of wins over the last week. Uh, last Thursday, they outscored the overmatched North Carolina Central Eagles 34-7 to in the second quarter and 29-7 to in the fourth quarter en route to the largest win by 74 points in program history, scoring 113 points, this mo- points the second most ever scored by the women's team. Uh, they surpassed their opening game total with 12 threes on 27 attempts, and that won three of those apiece from Lauren Schwartz and Savia Sellers. Sellers had 18, tying fellow freshman Ari Long for game high honors with Elodine scoring 17 and Schwartz 15. Not quite as explosive, but on Wednesday, they moved to 3-0 with a comfortable win over the University of the Pacific. Steins led the way with 12, while freshman Chloe Briggs had a career-high 11 off the bench. Uh, UW women continue their homestand to start the season Saturday against crosstown rivals Seattle U, who have started 0-3 as part of a rebuild under first-year head coach Skylar Young, who was the Storm's equipment manager and did on-court development work early in his career when the late Ann Donovan was the Storm's head coach, so... He returned to Seattle for Skylar Young. You have men's basketball, alas, not still undefeated. 
They got a second win on Thursday against Northern Kentucky when Severe Wheeler impressed in his UW debut after missing the season opener due to injury with 18 points and 7 assists. Many of those went to his former Kentucky teammate Keon Brooks Jr. who scored a career-high 32 points on 11 of 16 shooting and grabbed 10 rebounds in addition to 3 steals. They were the lone Huskies in double figures as the team shot 3 of 17 on threes and won with defense holding Northern Kentucky to 46% two-point shooting. That formula did not work on Sunday against a good Nevada team. Familiar shooting issues as they shot 29% on threes and 9 of 21 from the foul line, including 1 of 6 for Braxton Mee in his first start of the season in an 83-76 loss. Uh, Wheeler had 6 turnovers in this one. You're looking kind of at the bigger picture. Huskies could really use Moses Wood to get going. He's 4 of 16 beyond the arc this season after coming into the year as a 40% career three-point shooter. So what's the problem here? It's same old shit. They they can't shoot. Yeah, they're just kind of not good enough. I mean, and look, losing to Nevada, like the past teams would have lost this game in all in all likelihood too. Where's Nevada and Ken Palm? Uh, they moved up to like fifty-seven somewhere in that range. But so like this UW team, like any any hopes that we had that they were like a comfortable tournament team, they were a pipe dream. It seems unlikely, and Nevada is exactly the kind of team you're going to be competing for an at-large bid against in all likelihood. So, not a great loss from that standpoint. And now the schedule gets really real. Because the Huskies head to Las Vegas this weekend for the Continental Tire main event at T-Mobile Arena, where they'll face Xavier on Friday night before matching up against the winner between 2023 national runner-up San Diego State and St. Mary's, the latter a potential rematch of last year's Wooden Legacy final won by the Huskies. I remember that. On Thanksgiving Day, right? Correct. Thanksgiving night. Thanksgiving night. I mean, it, late, it, it, late on I Thanksgiving I believe night. it may have bled into Black Friday, if I recall correctly, from watching that game in my hotel room in Portland ahead of the uh, the you went to PK Portland? tournaments. Yeah, because there was... You came to Thanksgiving, then drove to Portland? Yeah. Wow, I don't remember that at all. Yeah, there was college tournaments all day the next day. Huh. So, where I saw, among other teams, Xavier play Gonzaga. Okay, so how is, how is Xavier? Uh, they're led by familiar face Sean Miller. Okay. Who returned for his second stint in Cincinnati last season after being fired by Arizona and led the Musketeers to the Sweet 16 for the first time since 2017 after they'd spent the last four years out of the tournament. They lost the bulk of the leaders of that experienced team, including Kings second-round pick Colby Jones. Uh, with his departure, it's sophomore Desmond Claude who has stepped into a leading role after showing promise as a freshman. He was definitely someone I took note of during that tournament. After cruising past two lesser foes at home, Xavier beat number, or lost at number one Purdue. On Monday, that's fine. Yeah, they're still like they're like thirtieth in Ken Palm ranking. So like the Huskies are a distinct underdog in this, which probably sets them up to face St. Mary's, who uh, lost at home to a, a very good Weaver State team on Monday night, and are probably going to fall out of the rankings. Shouts to Dame Lillard. Uh, wait, they lost to yeah. Uh, uh, Dylan Jones is part of that team. He's an NBA draft prospect. So so if if they win, they are more likely to face San Diego State. Correct. Who San Diego State is still excellent. I mean, they lost basically everybody from that team. So I, I guess I'm not sure how good San Diego State is really is at this point either. Uh, they're a slight favorite, according to Ken Palm. They're 31st, St. Mary's 43rd. So basically, the Huskies are the clear weakest team in this tournament on paper. But at the same time, I think you have to look at it as an opportunity against these teams, like you were saying, similar to Nevada. 
these are the types of teams that you're going to be competing with for at-large bids, right? The teams that are in that 30 to 50 range or yeah. whatever. If UW actually is going to be competing for an NCAA tournament, they have to win at least one of these games. I would agree. Well, I hope it's not the same old shit. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> That's all I could say. It really, it felt different. It felt different for a second. And then it didn't. Precisely one second. All right, let's talk about UW football. We're not saving them for the end? They, they, oh, yeah, yeah, I don't know. I screwed this they're up. They're playing this top 10 matchup. It, it was a top 10 matchup. No, they still get the hammer. Playoff game along. They still get the hammer. All right, the Seahawks. So you saw the second half of this game as you were at a music festival in L.A., Camp Flogna, on Sunday. So I wasn't at the festival yet. I didn't go to that until after the game. Oh, okay. but Makes sense. Uh, it's difficult to... I couldn't figure out. I was, like, traveling. We went to the Row. Uh, Schmorgisberg. Are you familiar with this? I'm not, but it looked it looked good. So you know where the row is, right? That's where the Pizzeria Bianco is. I, I mean, you mentioned it, but I've never been there. Literally like Skid Row, and then there's like the most gentrified block you can imagine, <laughs> right? I guess it used to be owned by American Apparel, I think is what, what the word was. And then so it's built out with like the Pizzeria Bianco. There's like coffee shops, clearly places that tech workers are at. People who are in like, maybe not even tech, but like they work in graphic design. Um, graphic design is my passion. So every, I guess multiple times, but Sunday in particular, they set up like the back, the back parking lot of that with all of these different like little stalls with tons of different food. Like mm -hmm. it is wild how much food there is there. So it's, it's kind of like night market-ish market -ish during yes. the day. And, and then shops and stuff like that. Uh, the food was excellent. Like looking around, it's fucking 80 degrees. You're hot as hell. I got a fresh squeezed juice. It was a perfect experience. Let me just say Los Angeles, California, not bad. Uh, but so There's a reason many people move there. <laughs> Honestly, I missed... It's like you're in mid-November. You said on Monday that you were excited to be back and for it to be a little cooler. That's what I was going to say. Yeah. Mid-November, you want to feel a little... It's dark. It gets dark early in California. But like you want to feel I mean, a little again, bit I'm aware. I was, I was there the weekend before as you were. I was happy for it to feel... Like if I... Being there and there's like Christmas trees set up everywhere and it's 80 degrees and you're like... Oh, it's a little, yeah, it's it's very yeah. confusing. There's I mean, some I, cognitive dissonance that you have to have to see a Christmas tree and be, be in 80-degree weather. I've only been there in after Christmas has happened because I went for the Rose Bowl and then I went several times in Jan that same January. It's probably actually. also not as hot. No. You have to be also comfortable with the Christmas creep to see a Christmas tree in, like, November um, 13th or whatever. And I know that you would have been appalled Offended citizens arrest <laughs> on Schmorgisberg. <laughs> so anyway, I'm literally watching it. Like I, I can get NFL Red Zone on my phone, but I didn't. I didn't have like. They gotta get. I think it should get some screens set up there. That seems like a no-brainer. No, very, very loud music. That's not. It wasn't really the vibe. It's always the vibe. I am telling you, the people of Los Angeles do not care about football. I don't agree with that. No, I think the the people of Los Angeles may not care about their teams. Do you know who the people of Los Angeles care about? Hmm. The Las Vegas Raiders. They they definitely actually do care about the Las Vegas Raiders. I agree with that. Uh, the amount of Ubers that I rode in with people who are Raiders fans exce far exceeded. I, I saw one Chargers fan and I was like... <laughs> Did you interview them as a social experiment? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> there was precisely Just one fan and precisely one Chargers fan. And I was like, where did you come from, sir? 
I was like, I literally was like, you must have driven up from San Diego and be a held over as Chargers fan. Anyway. So watching NFL Red Zone and end up going back to the hotel and just like seeing clips of the Seahawks game. Obviously, I can like follow it on Twitter or Gamecast or whatever, but like trying to watch. As yeah, I don't know how much the Seahawks were on Red Zone in the first half. I mean, I guess they were occasional drives getting to the Red Zone sometimes and failing to score touchdowns in the first half. Second half is like it's really dominated by Chargers Lions, right? Because that was a way better game. Uh, I was but, enjoying like watching that on Red Zone during the timeouts. It was especially because no, it was awesome. the players on my fantasy teams were scoring so many points. It was great. So there, the Seahawks game, was it a 125 start? Was it, it was, yes. Okay. So the Seahawks game is going later than everything else, right? And the Cowboys are crushing the Giants. Yes, which there's, is the other 125 There's start. a thing that happens on NFL Red Zone. Where they kind of consolidate? <clears throat> no. Where if there's only one game, uh, NFL Red Zone has to go off the air. Correct. Which was a very important thing for me. Because, because the Cowboys, I couldn't Giants tune into I couldn't tune into the local channel. In Seattle, I could have. But in L.A., the local game was Giants-Cowboys. And there's no, no like... I, I was straight up in, like, the fucking, like, neon ages of NFL TV. Or the, the iron ages of <laughs> neon ages. Neon ages. What do you, what do you I, I was in this, like, straight up... I mean, I don't know I, if you'd see this Tropic Haze kid. I think the neon ages are now, friend. <laughs> the 80s. <laughs> That's what it felt like, though. I was explaining to Luke. I was like, this is how we used to have to watch NFL. What do you mean watch NFL? We used to have to listen to it because the, the Seahawks were blacked yeah, out. Yeah, that too. Uh, but I was like, let me tell you about the NFL when I was young. That's another good guy's first down. Anyone's going to get that reference. So, the I need the Cowboys and the Giants to keep going to be able to watch the Seahawks and the Commanders on NFL Red Zone. Because if that game ends, it is over for me. It's a, it's My ability to watch dark. it. And, and I happen to know because they, they gave us bonus coverage. Of the like kneel down at the end of Cowboys Giants after the Seahawks game ended. Enter my favorite player of all time, Tommy DeVito. <laughs> that drive that he had extending that game, especially the touchdown with six seconds left, because I'm like, oh shit, this might end before we see the Jason Myers field goal, right? Like, the commanders score, and I'm like, just please get us through this, because, like, I want to go to the festival. There's other shit to do, but I need to see through the end of the game. When Washington scored that touchdown, I'm like, oh, we are so fucked. I'm going to have to, like, watch this in a car. I had to watch the end of UW, UW Utah in an Uber just, like, on my phone. And I'm like, like, literally, I see the block the blocked field goal in the Uber, and I'm just, like, quietly sitting there biting my finger or whatever. (laughs) No, I I kind of, I still felt pretty fine about the situation. I I wasn't really that that upset, but I was like, this is going to be a complicated situation. So, But I'm, like, sweating it out with that game. Brian Dable is calling timeouts, and I'm like, oh, yes, you are. (laughs) They were playing it. They literally were playing the end of that game as if they were coming down about to, like, tie in the fucking Super Bowl. The Giants were all caps playing football down 49 to 10 or whatever. So my guy, Tommy DeVito, throwing that touchdown pass, I think it was on fourth down, too, with six seconds left, making sure that there'd have to be a kick after that and another play. 
guided me through to the end of the Seahawks game on NFL Red Zone. It was a beautiful thing. That's interesting because my situation is uh, I had tickets for the 540 screening of uh, Killers of the Flower Moon at South Center and had to... That's dangerous territory. I know. So I had to drive to, to, to meet who I was going with and pick up taco time for dinner on the way. And I was like, just no overtime. And I saw that the, you know, the commander scored with what, 54 seconds left. And I was oh, like, yeah. that's enough time. Oh, no. Th- I mean, that's- we can do this. I will say that's kind of my takeaway from that game is like when push comes to shove. Our faith in Geno is still kind of high because I there was that much time on the clock, and I was like, I will say, here. it's our faith in Geno Smith against the Washington Commanders defense. Sure. Which is a key adjustment point. But there are certain quarterbacks that I would not have been as confident in, and I do think there was a lot of consternation about Geno Smith in that game. But the, My consternation reached an all-time high at the end of the first half with the <laughs> sack that or I guess was an intentional angst. grounding in the end. Yes, my angst was pretty high. That was a pretty bad play. I, I definitely watched that one. And I was thinking in my head, as you can't do this, obviously, but as Washington was scoring that touchdown, I was like, those three points would have been pretty nice. I, I also right was now. thinking that, yes. Uh, but I feel like it's almost like anti-Geno because the things that Geno does wrong aren't necessarily decisions like that. Like, usually he's able to handle those situations. But there is like a, I don't know, just like a building up a comfort level as a starting quarterback that Gino doesn't necessarily have, but he's getting a he's getting a little bit of confidence this year. Gino is coming into his own as a quarterback, and maybe that's not even a good thing. Yeah, I guess I guess I, if you put it that way, like I like mean, he's I, he's a little bit more willing to like get in on the players to like yell at the coaches. He's a little bit more fiery this year. He looks like he's the starting quarterback. Yeah, that's a good point. It's not a temporary thing. Like it maybe seemed at the start of last season where we all thought he was going to be benched soon for Drew Locke or or it was a question of how soon he would get benched for Drew Locke. And look, I, I've said this before on the pod, but I really want to make this point as clear as possible. The hardest thing in sports to discuss is an average starting NFL quarterback because you look around and you're like, this could be so much better. I love and, you have to be a real commentator to discuss the hardest thing to talk about in sports. <laughs> well, I am nothing. I'm not a pundit. I'm just like, it's the hardest thing for people to wrap their brains around. You know what I'm saying? Because like they look around and obviously we got spoiled with Russell Wilson for a number of years here. And then you look around and see what CJ Stroud is doing for Houston as a rookie and how transformational that is, is going to be for the Texans franchise for years to come. And you're like, man, I want that so badly. And having this average quarterback is on some level preventing us from exploring opportunities that could get us that player. But at the same time, you also look around and you see, I don't know, Tennessee starting Will Levis and scoring like six points or whatever they did on Sunday. Like you see, man, it could be so much fucking worse than Geno Smith. It is a very strange... No, I totally agree with you. It is a very strange situation. It's actually been a situation we've been fortunate enough as Seahawks fans to have more or less had, like, the guy for a couple of decades. I mean, there, there was, like, the tail end of the Hasselbeck era, there was this question, and, you know, I think he he was at that level, and the Seahawks, like, to their credit, 
they did try a bunch of different things to get a, a, a high-level starting quarterback in terms of signing Matt Flynn and drafting Russell Wilson and signing Charlie Whitehurst. <laughs> Charlie Whitehurst, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I don't know if I would describe and, signing Matt Flynn and Charlie it, Whitehurst as trying to get a high-level quarterback. Oh, you are forgetting how hyped we were on Matt Flynn's performance as a starter know, in Green just Bay. Like, just because they were trying to doesn't mean they didn't exactly like but that's but that's the point is they took a lot of different shots that didn't preclude them from taking other shots. Yes, and I think that actually is a pretty good strategy. I, I it is basically what they did last year with re-signing Gino at the same time they traded for Drew Locke. It's underrated just how great it is. Maybe it's not. Maybe it is appropriately rated just how great it is to have a good young starting quarterback and not have to think about it to yeah. just be like. That's the quarterback for the foreseeable future. Well, we'll unless get to, it's Josh Allen. We'll get to the discussion of what it was like in the East End Zone on Saturday, but sometimes people can take those things for a little bit for granted. I will say, I sure because you do it, they do come with expectations having a quarterback at that level as well. And expectations <laughs> are the worst of things. But I agree with you about Geno in general. But there, there's a reality that, like, Geno could be benched. You know what I mean? He like could. Russell Wilson could never be benched. Yes. Russell Wilson in his in his time in Seattle literally could never be benched after his rookie season. By the way, Russell Wilson also a difficult quarterback to talk about at this stage of his career. How to talk to your children about Russell <laughs> Wilson's comeback against the Bills. But Geno Smith could be benched. The money that they have tied up in Geno long term is not that great. If Geno is bad, the Seahawks could move on relatively easily and be like, well, what do we have in true lock? So I think that makes it even more difficult because when you have Russell Wilson in your head, you're like, I can say whatever the fuck I want. I can complain. I can boo. I can whatever. I can be happy. I can be sad. It's not going to matter. Well, I don't think what we say but, is going to matter about Gino Smith. Obviously, that too. But like, you can't even entertain the thought. I don't think Pete Carroll was like, well, Jim Moore thought they should bench, we should bench him for Drew Locke. So I got to take that into consideration here. With Gino, though, there is a like, if things turn south enough, they could be like, well, we're going to see what Drew Locke looks like. I, I agree that's a possibility. But you know, should, maybe they should see what it looks like. Playing defense? Yeah. Because let me tell you, the Washington Commanders are a decent offense, but not as good as they looked for large swaths of this game. And the Seahawks are now down to 20th in defensive DVOA. And as much time as everyone has spent worried about the offense, they are 11th on offense. And like Devin Witherspoon's great. Requeen is still a very good coverage cornerback. They've got healthy safeties. They've got so many safeties. They've got pretty good edge play from Boye Mafe. They, you know, added to the interior defensive line and slid Dre Jones out to uh, to play on the edge a little bit on base downs with Daryl Taylor not playing as much on Sunday. And yet, like, the Seahawks can try all these things and do all these good things, and they still can't even get to fucking average on defense. Yeah. I mean, trading for Leonard Williams, did you include that in your list? Yes. Uh, the It's one of those things where you kind of can just like keep pointing to somebody else. There's the three different levels of the defense or whatever, and you're like... I believe that's called whack-a-mole. And, and it's always kind of somebody else's fault. I think that the linebackers are probably the weakest. There were some moments where like... Bob, I mean, Bobby Wagner is an excellent linebacker. His feel for the game, the plays that he makes... He looked a little slow out there a few times, like especially watching it. Or I guess you were watching on TV also, but like seeing him on TV, there were some moments where I was like, 
I mean, it was Bobby's a little slow, and we're a little bit far into the season. It was mostly the Seahawks over pursuing and getting themselves in trouble that way. I think, which is well, like what's always the case with this defense, and like you know, they just made enough plays in the Legion of Boom era to make up for it, and now they don't make enough plays to make up for it. I still think, I think there's like a top ten defense in there. Maybe not this season. If there was anything to me that throughout the year, because right, like where the team is on November 15th is not necessarily where the team is going to be on December 30th. It's not. It's not, but they're December. also like totally healthy now. Uh, you know, Kobe Bryant at some point, I, it's going to return. He's not going to play. Or December 31st when they play the Steelers, right? That is going to be a different football team. Everybody else throughout the league is going to be a different football team. So we can, we can do like projecting forward and how things are looking right now is a pretty good indication of how things are going to look in the future, but they're not a one-to-one correlation. Teams are going to go up. Teams are going to go down. It is a long time. It is six weeks in a football team, in a football season between now and then. And I think in the Seahawks defense, they are going to play better for the rest of the season than they have played so far in the season, even though they're going to be playing some very, very difficult opponents. And so it might not even be, might not even necessarily show up in the score, but I think statistically speaking, the underlying stats are going to improve, and I think this defense is going to get better throughout the rest of the year. I mean, they've maybe been a little unlucky on third down, not the, but the discrepancy is not as much from the first two days. But I'm, I'm saying not even necessarily like that. I'm saying teams might still score points because they're going to be playing the Cowboys and the Eagles and the 49ers, right? Oh, weird. You know, the 49ers, it turns out that their offense still looks pretty fucking good when uh, okay. Trent Williams is healthy if, and Debo Samuel is healthy. Huh? Who would have imagined that? Who could have possibly envisioned that scenario? First off, it was one game. They still have the same record as the Seahawks. It was one game against a much better team that the Seahawks beat on the road, and they thrashed the Jaguars. Second off, if the 49ers offense, this is, this is maybe coping or whatever, oh, if, if the 49ers offense... Cope. To be an excellent offense requires every single one of those players to be healthy. That is not something that I'm counting on long term. I suppose so, but the Seahawks can have all their players healthy and still not be that good. That's, no, that's I, the problem. Are the 49ers better than Seahawks? Obviously, they this are. This team convinced, deluded themselves. I mean, the, the word that kept coming into my head during the first half, maybe even the first 3.45 quarters of this game, 3.55, I don't know, was the hubris. Of the Leonard Williams trade. Hubris. <laughs> I Angst and hubris. Angst and hubris. <laughs> All right. Let's talk about some Seahawks news. Uh, Abe Lucas was designated to return from IR on Wednesday. Opening the Trent Williams day. of the Seahawks. Window, I hope so. I really I do hope so. 21-day window to return to, pre- to uh, practice. Pete Carroll said Monday it's possible he could play this Sunday. Uh, the Seahawks can't elevate Jason Peters from the practice squad again without adding him to the 53-man roster. Peters has split snaps at right tackle with Stone Forsyth. I think he's, he's going to get But played the, the majority on roster. He's looked excellent. I think it's still. I don't think they'll elevate him if Lucas is healthy. Lucas I is think not they playing. Will. Okay. Are you kidding me? He's not playing this week. He might play on Thanksgiving. I hope he will play on Thanksgiving. Uh, let's talk about the Rams. Who are 23rd in DVOA, 26th in Dave. Since blowing out the Seahawks in week one, they have won just two games at Indianapolis in overtime and against Arizona. So why do they still rate pretty well in DVOA? Their schedule has been the seventh hardest. The, are you consider that... I, do I mean, compared to their record? Have you seen their record? Okay. 
com- with games against San Francisco, Philadelphia, and Dallas, all of whom were made on the Seahawks schedule two times in the Niners case. Uh, Matthew Stafford missed their 23 loss at Green Bay, uh, which is also part of why I think it's remarkable that they're still 23rd in DVOA before the bye with a UCLA sprain in his throwing thumb. But uh, Sean McVay said Monday that Stafford should be ready to go on Sunday and that the Rams signing journeyman Carson Wentz was a, quote, a chance to upgrade the QB room after backup Brett Ripien, now on the Seahawks practice squad, there we went go. 13 of 28 for 130 yards and a pick against the Packers. That's secret agent Brett Ripien to you. I also, like, there's something very amusing to me because I just connect Carson Wentz with that first year of the Rams rise and his AC, he tore his ACL against the Rams, right? Yeah. He was in that game. Never, been, never quite been the same since for Carson Wentz. Uh... Stafford's performance in the opener against the Seahawks was his best of the year as he went 24 of 38 for 334 yards, a season high, was not sacked. Uh, His overall 60% completion percentage is his lowest since 2013, but his yards per attempt has bounced back a bit from last year's 6.9 to 7.4. The big story of the opener was our old friend Puka Nakua, who had 10 catches and 15 targets for 119 yards in his NFL debut. He hasn't maintained the pace of 300-yard outings in his first four games, but still ranks sixth in the NFL in receiving yards and easily tops among this strong rookie class. Tutu Atwell has seen his role marginalized with the return of Cooper Cup, who's averaged 72.8 yards per game since returning from IR, which would be his lowest mark since 2020. His 8.1 yards, yards per target are similar to last year, but he's catching just 51% of targets, which would be far and away the lowest of his career. His previous low was 66% as a rookie. So that's kind of baffling. Yeah, that doesn't really make any sense to me. I mean, one of those games was with Brett Ripien. But only one. Uh, the Rams' pass block win rate ranks 27th. They do expect to get right tackle Rob Havenstein back after he missed their last two games due to injury. Uh, Cam Akers got a team-high 22 carries against the Seahawks in Week 1, was subsequently traded to Minnesota, and I believe he ruptured his Achilles. I think that's what ended his season. Uh, Football. Kyron Williams had emerged as the lead back before going on IR with an ankle injury. Royce Freeman and Daryl Henderson have split carries since then. <laughs> the Rams rank 8th overall in rush EPA per play but 29th since Williams went on IR. Uh, Rams 24th in defensive DOA. Their average against the run, 23rd against the pass. Gino in the opener averaged 4.3 yards per attempt. Oh, I looked at that and I was like, wow, was it really that bad? Oh, it, it was, was, it was it bad. Was. It's kind of shocking looking at that score now, like knowing that the Seahawks are, yeah. like, a, I Generally guess, a good, a good team. A good team. Yeah. But that they just Although got... Although they're, they're average by DVOA. But how much they got crushed by the Rams in week one is very strange. That was their fewest allowed all season. They have allowed at least eight yards per attempt in six of their nine games, including each of the last three, which include losses to the Steelers and Packers, two teams not known for their explosive offenses. Uh, They have held opponents to the eighth lowest completion percentage, but the 11.6 yards per completion opponents have managed our seventh highest. Rams 24th in sack rate. Aaron Donald has five and a half, and third round pick Byron Young has five. Donald is still third and pass rush win rate among defensive tackles. I mean, this is kind of just a... You, you, by the way, know who's number one in that stat, right? It's Boye Mafe, right? No, amongst defensive tackles. Oh. It's Jalen Carter. Your, your nemesis. Great. Sometimes the stats lie. Pass rush win rate. Um, Devin Witherspoon is awesome. And didn't... Whatever. Devin Witherspoon is awesome. 
the Rams are kind of just a below average team at everything who happened to crush the Seahawks in week one and also are the Rams. It's right. right if this wasn't the Rams and there wasn't the history against if Sean it was McVay, it would not any be a other scary team. game. But also Matt, Matt Stafford. You just can't call him Matthew, can you? After week one, I did. I think, I think there was a long rant about it. But he's back to Matt now. <laughs> oh, no. Anyway, Matt he's, Stafford. He is playing very much like the Detroit era. He's Stafford. playing like Matt. Uh, Matt Stafford is the type of quarterback who can shred the Seahawks defense, right? If they're not getting the pass rush there, if they're not getting to him, making him feel uncomfortable, if they do Which that, is, he was it, not sacked. And I think I said that right. And I, I have a little bit more faith in this defensive line and, and the Boyamafe, Leonard I mean, Williams. Boyamafe, seven consecutive games with a sack. Devin Witherspoon didn't play in that game in week one. The secondary is definitely better. Like the defense overall is a better Jamal, team. Jamal Adams obviously yeah. did not play. Overall, the defense is a like there's a lot of Devin Bush in week one. Devin Bush has been like just relegated, yeah. right? You say the promotion and relegation doesn't exist in the United States. It exists with Devin Bush and he has been relegated. But like the... The team that played the Rams in week one is a different team than they are right now. Offensively, they're closer, but even then, there are some differences. Uh, well, they're probably not going to go two for 16 on third down or whatever they did in that game. I still mean, they, a little bit. They just ran good. so few plays that they could never really get in a rhythm offensively. It was a Seahawks game. <laughs> I, but that wasn't the case last week. Like, they, that wasn't their problem. They ran a shit ton of plays, I think. So this is one of those games where I'm like, the Seahawks should move the ball. In any other situation, I'd say that the Seahawks should move the ball. And I think Stafford is, Stafford's going to score points in this game, right? Like, the, the Rams are going to score points. He's going to move the ball. It's going to be frustrating. In the end, they should be able to comfortably win this game, like a 10-point game or something. Comfortably? They're one-point favorites in this game. But you understand, like, they should be ahead most of the game against the Rams. They are a better team than the Rams are, and the Rams are not in a good position. Matthew Stafford's back. I get that. They're going to look a little bit better. But Seahawks like, ran 74 plays last week to 61 for wild. Washington. I, I actually still feel... I think they're going to win this game, and I actually feel semi-okay about it, like, going into it. The thing that concerns me is the Ramsness of it all, and it's Sean McVay. They know how to play the Seahawks. It is Matthew Stafford. He knows how to play the Seahawks. He knows this defense. He's played it over and over and over again. All of those things you talked about, like Rob Havenstein coming back, this shit always happens against us. Seventy-nine plays for the seventy-eight plays for the Rams, forty-six for the Seahawks. The one. defense is going to play better than they played in that game. I, I think mean, they were just, they were just a little bit shaken in Week One. They weren't quite ready for the season to start, and the Rams were more ready for the season to start. But time has passed. the The franchises have gone in different directions, like. I don't know. It doesn't concern me as much as I think it It could. I think it probably should concern you a little more. The Seahawks very much can lose this game. They're playing on the road. I do think... It's low-key a must-win game for them, too. It's a very important game when you look at the schedule that's coming. Just as last week was a very important game for them to win. Uh, you know, they they needed to at least go one-and-one one in this stretch. So they've they've accomplished that minimum. I think my percentage chances of victory are like 58% for this one. I think the Seahawks deserve to be favored. And, you know, it's not quite a knife's edge, but I don't think they're overwhelming favorites by any stretch of the imagination. So you know, I think they it's a very losable game, I guess is what I would put it.
I'm a little bit more like 65%. Well, you're always you're always somewhat higher, so that's not I, surprising. But I, I, I just, looking at it overall, like the Rams had a long time to prepare for that game in week one. Obviously, oh, the they Seahawks, have a long time to prepare for this one because they're coming off a bye. It's, it's just different, though. Like the roster is different at this point. Uh, the Rams are a little bit less incentivized to win. You know, they're not making a playoff push. They have their draft pick, right? I believe they do have their draft pick. But I'm not, being the Rams, I I'm can't say I'm not say saying for that sure. they're tanking, but like the Seahawks are very incentivized to win this game. And and I will give the Seahawks credit. Aside from that Bengals game, they have won these close games this year. They've won the games that they lost last year. I don't think that's a thing to give them credit for. Winning is a thing to give them credit for. Yes. Whether you like it or not. I mean, obviously, it's better to win a close game than to lose a close game, but it's better to not play a close game at all. It doesn't... In the end, it is the exact same thing. I, I don't think that's the case. So, the Rams do have their, their pick this year. They have all of their top three picks, in fact. So, I, they, no one is saying fuck them picks in LA anymore. Except for the Lakers. They are still saying that. All right. The Washington Huskies got to 10-0 and by beating Utah last Saturday. And you know what the theme of the day was in the East End Zone? There's only one thing that it possibly could be. Was it angst? Angst. Angst. People were complaining about Michael Penix Jr. over the course of this game. The Heisman favorite. That's what I was saying about Chris Smith. He sows discord. <laughs> it was not Chris. Chris was not responsible. There was a lot of angst about the tackling in the first half and probably deservedly so because Utah <sighs> set a season high for passing yards. I think it was a season high for passing yards in the first half when they ran 36 plays for 306 yards. And then in the second half, they ran 21 plays for 76 yards in the entire second half, while well, UW with 37 for 179. Still ended up Utah's third best game of the season in yards per play. But in the second half, the defense outscored the Utah offense. There we go. It was not 6 0 2-0. It was 2-0. <laughs> so this was the moment. Utah driving for a potential go-ahead score, trailing 33-28. Uh, Utah got... It was a strange series of events because Bryson Barnes missed a play, I think, after a roughing the passer, if yes. I recall correctly. Yep. Their backup quarterback comes in. They get called for a hold. They're first and 20. And I don't remember if there was another play. I think there was one more play. I think it was second down where Barnes' pass gets tipped and intercepted by Alfonso Tupatala. He jukes Barnes at, you know, like the 20 or the 30. And he's there heading was, there to the was end a, a block, too. There was a block there. And I thought they called... I thought they called a block in the back. When when you on, saw the officials conferring, we are hugging in the East End Zone. It is very similar, not quite to the level, but very similar to what we experienced against Arizona State uh-huh. with the Mish Powell pick six. And then the people in the row in front of us. So we're on the far end from Tupatala's Oh, literally, you are like 150 yards away from that. So far. Yeah. You, like four and or also, five miles you're away. Not, we're not that high up. So it's not like you're looking down on the game right. and seeing it. You're pretty low. Some people in the row in front of us say, he dropped the ball. <laughs> and I, being the, you know, detail, every blade of grass-minded person uh-huh. that I am, I've been taught well by Pete Carroll, start thinking, but wait, are they? did it go into the end zone and out for a touchback? 
or are they getting the ball at the one-yard line? Because there's a huge difference between those two things. And as soon as they announced the one-yard line, my positive energy contrasted with the, the just anger, the sheer... Oh, I think sure. the anger was fair. You can't tell me that the angst wasn't fair. That's I'm not crazy. saying it wasn't fair. You don't set up a pick six to pin them at the one. I'm not saying it wasn't fair. I am saying we cannot compete in the past. Yeah. So we have to be forward thinking, as players said after the game, and immediately started thinking, this is a great safety, safety opportunity. Time. Here we go. And lo and behold, with Tuli Leitu Lasanoa, who played the majority of the, or you know, a regular amount of this game after being limited for such a long period of time, and Carson Bruder combining for the tackle in the end zone on the first play, the Huskies get the safety, take a seven point lead, get the ball back. They didn't ultimately score. 35 28 ended up the final score in this one. But I mean, I, I definitely, a couple of thoughts. Number one, when we saw that it was at the one, it was a long review, too. Like, I eventually, I was watching on TV, and I saw it, and I was like, You're right, I'm jumping up and down and celebrating, and they show, like, Zoe looking back and just being so shocked about what had happened, and I thought it was a penalty. I'm like, we'll still score. It's fine. You know what I mean? Like, it sucks, but whatever. Immediately, my thought goes, we'll get the safety. We'll score again. I said the Nine same thing. Nine points is better than seven. I said the same thing. Because really, like, a safety is one... If you have a good offense, it's, like, basically the best play in all of sports. Yeah. In all of, all of football, right? To be able to get something like that, it is a huge swing. It's like uh, Benjamin Warris wrote a piece for 538. I saw a reference recently in Ryan Hanlon's great book on uh, soccer analytics. Uh, that The value of a steal <laughs> is nine points. Which actually is not. It's nine times the value of a marginal point because like of the value of a steal in what sport? In basketball. Nine points? It's not actually nine points. It's like a steal provides nine times as a marginal steal on the margins provides nine times as much value as a marginal point because someone else can score the point, but usually no one else is going to get the steal. If that makes sense. <laughs> you're, you're, what you're lost on this one it what was, are you talking it's about it's a tough one to explain like a player's steals are more important than a player's points because to get points you have to shoot and someone else can shoot uh-huh. but to get steals you don't have to there's there's not that same trade-off of someone else not being able to do something okay what about blocks different because you don't automatically get possession yeah not as not as good as steals so are we undervaluing steals in the NBA? Oh, yeah, 100%. Like, I don't know why I say we. I don't even know. I couldn't even tell you who whatever from the Warriors is. <laughs> Brady yeah. Pudjewski. Let yeah. me tell you, he got them some steals. Yeah, next one, steal, right? <laughs> the guys on the Felton players to watch list often do. <laughs> but so you're saying that a, a steal is defensively like the most important thing you can do in the NBA? Yes. So it's not quite like, it's not actually like that. But yes, the safety, it's great. My other perspective is, why are players so eager to get rid of the football? (laughs) Like, what is it about having a football? It's not like a nuisance, right? It's not like a thing that you just like are straddled with. It's not like you put a bottle of water next to Kanye West on an airplane, right? Like, there is a reality of 
Carry the football with you into the end zone. Players are so excited to get rid of the football. It's the thing that I think about all the time. Score the touchdown, get in there, celebrate with the football. That's the thing that made it a touchdown, right? Anybody can run into the end zone. <laughs> the having of the football with you is the special part about it. So why are you so also like, eager to throw it down? It's one thing. Roma Dunze had a play where he caught a touchdown pass and like immediately threw the football I know, away. I hate it. It's just like... Catch that pass, make like, sure, secure that catch. Very excited when they kicked the extra point after that one. Yeah. Did not reveal it. But, but like, why? Rome why Rome? scores a lot of touchdowns. He's been there before. Even is not scoring any touchdowns. He should have been taking that directly to the sidelines, maybe walk it into the locker room just for safekeeping. Ugh, I, <laughs> it was so frustrating to have that happen. And it is one of those things I'm impressed because there is like a mental, like, you can't compete in the past. But the past definitely oh, it, yeah. it weighs on you. Look, that's a. It was actually a great sign of resilience and grit. No, I was impressed. You'd have defense. This de- they, the defense in general being. And you could say that same about their second half after exactly, that first half. In so many moments, it was funny because I was watching on my phone for the first couple of series, and I was like, punt, punt. Yeah, Huskies like, punted. I was and like, I, oh, this is gonna be the game we thought it was. And, and then it was like. You know, it was the USC game broke out for the entire second quarter. Utah scored just so easily. And there was a point where I was like, literally, Utah will never not score a touchdown. Every time they touch the ball, they are scoring a touchdown and fast. Especially when they did it right before the half so quickly. Yeah. Yeah, that was a really bad situation. I mean, it was was a horrible situation. So the the defense being able to come back from that, I thought was pretty incredible. Same with the missed field goal. With the missed field goal, and then just like Utah had, I guess, if there were momentum, if that was a thing, Utah had the momentum in that situation, and the defense just shut them the fuck down. Boom, boom, boom. Utah, at the same time, they are who we thought they were on offense. Like, it wasn't just UW's defense, if we're being honest with ourselves. Oh, of course. They had some drops. They had some penalties. Like, they just didn't play that crisp of a game on offense, because their offense isn't that good. It is not. We were 100% correct to be very scared of Sione Vaki, who did nothing as a runner in this game. He had one carry I, for I called that yards. ejection to the targeting. They went to commercial right away, and I was watching, and I was like, Luca, that was, I was like, they should be looking at this. That was a targeting. It was his brother who got ejected. Oh, interesting. I did not realize that in the stadium. No, because Luca was like, that was Vaki, and I was like, oh, shit, that's huge. But it was his brother, the other Vaki, who got ejected. Uh I hope that's right, actually, that information. Because it's straight from an 11-year-old. I did not... Sony Vaki definitely did not get ejected. I can guarantee you that. I, I have not fact-checked this information, I want to say. But he ended up with a 53-yard touchdown catch and had another play where if he had not slipped in the backfield, it was going to be an enormous play. And the Huskies got super lucky he slipped on that one. But the, the defense in general, I, I think you have to be impressed with their performance in that second half. Overall... 28 points against Utah is not exactly a, like, I would, I would take that type of performance. I mean, it was, the, again, their third highest yards per play of the season. But I definitely called that targeting, where I was like, mm, nope, that was a targeting. Well, let me see. I can't, can't find exactly who was called for the targeting there. but uh... And they just, like, went to commercial and then came back. I don't know if you knew in the stadium that they were reviewing it for targeting. We did, yes. They, they had mentioned it. So, I... I was a little surprised that they ejected him for that hit, but not shocked, I guess I would say. Yeah, is no, there, not, is not, there no Vaki brother? Is Luca just totally wrong? Not seeing a lot of references to this on, on the internet here. 
<laughs> Someone says they wish he had a twin brother so that they could play one of them on offense and one of them on defense, which sadly you cannot. I mean, they, you can play them on both offensive and defense. Uh, the other news I mentioned this at the top: Kaylin DeBoer. I wish he had a brother so they could start a podcast. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> you had to rush back from relighting your fire to say that one. Yeah. Kaylin DeBoer said Monday he's begun conversations with new GM Troy, new GM athletic director Troy Dannon about extending and upgrading his contract for a second consecutive year. Sometimes you say the quiet parts out loud. <laughs> I mean, I mean he is. I hundred percent is the same. They just call it different things. I, I said Jerry DePoto was at the GM meetings. I didn't say it was at the president of baseball operations meetings. Sometimes it's easier to just, just uh, do the real thing. Uh, here's what DeBoer had to say. Troy has done a good, great job of approaching me and working together to try to make sure that continuity exists here at UW. That doesn't just happen overnight, but those efforts are certainly being made, and I'm appreciative of that. Then he was asked whether he views UW as his long-term home, and DeBoer said, yeah, this is a great place. My family, I keep bringing it up, but my family loves it here. There's a lot of other reasons, too. My daughter, Alexis, a 2024 UW softball commit, as we've talked about. I guess she does or doesn't love me talking about it, but there's just a lot of things that I love about this place. This is a championship football program. I said it from day one. It's got the bones of championships. Love the way we've been accepted into this place. It's a great place to coach. Like I said earlier, Troy's trying to do everything he can to help myself and the staff continue this journey that we're on. AKA, Texas A&M made a phone call to Kaylin DeBoer's agent. And Kaylin DeBoer's agent was like, hey, we need to be paid more here. Troy Dannon, credit to him, he, he had one job taking over his UW's athletic department, and that was to not lose Kalen DeBoer. I think he's got more than one job, but that's job one. I will say that. No, I mean, this is... Look, he's he's the UW athletic department president or whatever. Athletic director. Athletic director. He's, again, the, the actual he's in charge of UW football. Like, that is... I, I think he's got the, a Mike Hopkins situation to figure out. I don't think that's, the, like, not There his... are other situations to figure out. Job number 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, again, 15, 16, 17. The men's we basketball... Saw it, we saw it this summer. UW is in the Big Ten because of football. They I mean, changed their conference after 100 years. 100 years in a conference. And I can tell you the consideration that was given for any... It is not a UW baseball consideration. That was a football decision. Well, it's a revenue decision. It's a TV decision. And the bulk of the TV money comes from football. From football. But that doesn't mean that men's basketball isn't a very important source of revenue for the athletic department. And again, yes. that is going to be a very important question. That's not going to be 13. It's going to be like maybe four on the list. Okay. Mike All Hopkins' right. future. Uh, Any, anyway, Kaelin DeBoer staying in Seattle. I mean, and look, he could have made more money last year if he had wanted to after that run, that season that they had. Kaelin DeBoer. One of the things he prioritized was a larger pool for his coaching staff. And relative, you know, the UW's assistant coaching salaries are in the top 10 nationally. Kaelin DeBoer's salary is nowhere near the top 10 nationally. I think that I, and this might be the end of Ryan Grubb, but like, <laughs> the the Ryan Grubb sounds, sounds horrible. <laughs> As Ryan Grubb is going to get a lot of opportunities this offseason, likely to be a head coach, possibly even at the Power 5 level. I, I don't think Ryan Grubb should take a job that's not at the Power 5 level. I think he should take the Boise State job. Oh, I absolutely do not think so. If if I'm Ryan Grubb... Take the job that sets up the job, not the, not the eh job. Are you familiar with Dan Lanning? 
I am familiar with Dan Lanning. I don't think he's going to... Sometimes if, the job that sets up the job is the University of Oregon. Okay, well, if... if well, sure. I mean, Dan Lanning, much stronger public statements about his plans to stay at Oregon. I kind of saw that. I just, his was almost too strong. Like, yeah, yeah, was yeah, like you, were, the you, right you were like, I think you might actually be going somewhere else. You're so strongly said. Exactly. Sex. It was like, you doth protest too much, Dan Lanning. <laughs> be a little bit neutral here. I am not worried about my contract t-shirt. It's raising a lot of questions. To answer <laughs> about whether I'm worried about my contract. Uh... <laughs> But I, I don't think that the the equivalent of the Oregon job is going to be available to Ryan Grubb. If it is, awesome and great for him. I'm just I, I skeptical. I think it's more second tier. I don't power think that Ryan Grubb schools. is going to be the head coach of Texas A&M. It wouldn't shock me. It would shock me. Texas A&M is going to spend so much money on who though. It doesn't matter who. It, it doesn't it matter. Does They'll matter find someone. There someone, has to be a someone person. will take their money. <clears throat> Who is out there? Someone will take their I'm money. I'm sure, like, like, like probably like the James Madison head coach or whatever. You know it's what I mean? Not, it's not going to be the James Madison. Who do you think it's going to be? I'm just who told you coaches? who I think it's going to be. Do you know be? how many people got fired this week? I guess it was the week of firing around college football. A lot of coaches in that mid-tier. You have to find a pairing of mid-tier head coach at no, a... No, they don't have to fire... My, like, they're going to find a... a Someone else at the same level as Texas A&M, whose contract is not currently as large, is going to go to Texas A&M. Like Lincoln Riley went from Oklahoma to USC. That's going to happen. Like Brian Kelly went from Notre Dame to U- to I don't. To I LSU. do not buy you just, You're not understanding the new college can football landscape. Can you, can you give game. me a hypothetical person? Just Can you make up... I, mean, I don't know that many college football coaches. I don't really care about college football outside of UW. Oh God, I care so much about college football right now. It's I actually kind wild. of hate college football but, outside but of UW. You, but... Can you give me maybe Ryan Day? <laughs> I, mean, I, don't, I don't think that's actually Ryan Grove will be the coach of my state. Uh, <laughs> it'll be Urban Meyer again. Um, well, probably uh, that's be. actually not a bad one. But Ryan <laughs> oh Day, Ryan God. Day is not going. If he loses to Michigan, they might they might carry him there themselves. That's my point. Uh, you know, you don't win. Jimbo Fisher went to Texas A and M from another big school. <laughs> you know why? Because of the money. Because he was not in great situation at Florida State anymore. Oh, yeah. I I am very fascinated who ends up being their head coach. But I'm just throwing this out there that I do think that, that Ryan Grubb is near the top of the list. I don't think so. I no, just... of, not of, at Texas A&M. I think he is near the top of the list of coordinators who are going to get college head coaching jobs. I agree that he is. I think that athletic directors prefer to look for coaches Established coaches at the mid-major level, like Kalen DeBoer. Okay. We'll see. I'm giving you an okay. <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> How was Jim, Jimbo at Florida State before well, he they went? Five and six in his final season before he left. So that's probably why he left. It was a full three, four years after they'd won the national championship. And three years after they'd played. He, he read the writing on the wall at Florida State. He was like, fuck but that's up. what I'm saying is someone is going to read the writing at the wall where but th- they are. That is going to be to that Texas. close to a national championship because Kirby Smart just wins all the national championships now. <laughs> Dave Isaac. <laughs> Nick Saban. <laughs> like, the, you can look back at the national champion sh- champions recently and I none of them. I don't think it's necessarily going to be someone who's won a national championship. That's a little too specific. Maybe Jim Harbaugh goes there. <laughs> I will tell you where Jim Harbaugh is going to be. The NFL? Seattle Seahawks head coach replacement for Pete Carroll. <clears throat> I think I think Jim Harbaugh, at some point, 
might get sick of this shit in college. I agree. He's been suspended for a lot of games this year. So many games. At the same time, like, he would also similar... I don't... If there was a similar situation that happened in the NFL has ha- happened at huh. Michigan... If only there were an example of a team caught stealing signs but in did, the NFL. Did Belichick get suspended? I don't think he did, no. But I think he would if that happened now. You think so? Yeah. Because the whole thing about what happened with Brady was clearly a response by the NFL to not punishing the Patriots enough Deflate, over Spygate. Deflategate was... More harsh of a punishment yeah. because of the lesser punishment during Spygate. Yeah, because other NFL owners were upset about this. But we need to talk about, like, there's a top 10 matchup between, it's the final matchup between UW and Oregon State, which is a meaningful thing in and of itself. Like, as much as, like, we're going to keep playing Washington State in almost all likelihood, Oregon State is the real loss here. Like, fuck Stanford. Yeah. Cows, whatever. Yeah. I agree with both those. Oregon teams. State is the school that UW should be playing every year and is no longer probably never going to play like almost ever again because if you're already playing Wazoo as one of your non-conference yeah. games, why are you going to schedule Oregon State as well? Can we think back at all the great moments we've had against Oregon State? Well, I mean, in particular, this season is very reminiscent of the 2000 season when Oregon State head coach Jonathan Smith was the quarterback at Oregon State. And the top three teams in the Pac-12 at that time, the Pac-10, were Oregon, Oregon State, and Washington, who ended up like basically all beating each other. Oregon beat UW, UW beat Oregon State, and Oregon State won the Civil War, what was then the Civil War, no longer that, against Oregon, allowing UW to go to the Rose 51 Bowl. 51-3 also. Washington State 51-3 that day. Oh, yes. And then Oregon <laughs> State also went to the a New Year's Day game playing against... Uh, Notre Dame in the Fiesta Bowl, and hours after UW beat Purdue in the Rose Bowl, Notre Dame, Oregon State destroyed Notre Dame in the Fiesta Bowl. Maybe the all-time best day in the history of the Pac-10 slash Pac-12. I I remember that day that the Civil War was happening and the Apple Cup were happening, like it was yesterday. You were at the Apple Cup, right? I was. I was in Portland, Oregon. Yep. Uh, visiting a family friend who was in the hospital, and you could feel it in the air—the angst in the state of Oregon. <laughs> And watching so it, I remember hits. trying to pronounce TJ Hushmanzada at the time. Hush. Uh, that was a very fun one. But I'm thinking of the memories more like the 2006. Rain? <laughs> the rain? A bright-eyed and bushy-tailed young Tristan had just started at the University of Washington. So excited to go to college football games. I'd already seen the likes of Brady Quinn and Matt Leinert and Reggie Bush. And in came Oregon State. And I don't know where this ranks historically speaking as one of the rainiest days in Seattle history, but if you were to ask me about it, it is numero uno, oh. number one rainiest day in Seattle history. To me, even UW though I was versus... not in it, the Stanford day game was uh, was rainier. Flash forward two years after that, I guess, because they probably nope. played Oregon State on the road. No, they back to back years. Back to back at Flash home. forward to the very next year, Oregon State at home in Seattle. Turns out, <laughs> dramatic pause here. Somehow, the rainiest day in Seattle history was repeated. With I believe the, we've looked this up, and it was not actually that rainy in 2007. It was just a the miserable one. Was rainy, and UW's quarterback Isaiah Stanbeck at the time, yes, injured for the season, suffered a Liz Frank injury. In yes. that game against Oregon State, those are my first two introductions to playing Oregon State. In Seattle, Washington, I am fine 
with never playing Oregon State again. Thank you, I sir. I think it's probably going to continue to rain in October and November in Seattle, even if they're playing matter. Iowa or Minnesota. It doesn't matter. Sometimes when playing a school gets so deep, this is a, a canon event for me. Playing Oregon State, I have never been as wet from rain as I was in that game. I remember going home and literally just taking my clothes off and immediately putting them into the dryer. Drenched. It's one of those things where your hoodie is drenched. And then somehow the shirt that you're wearing underneath the weasel logo U-dub, Husky under it. <laughs> oh, the weasel. That shirt also drenched to its core. All we were doing was sitting around waiting for UW basketball season to start because that's how long ago this was that we cared about UW basketball more than UW football. You've actually got the years wrong. It was 2005 and 2006. That's fine. I didn't know which year I went to UW, apparently. <laughs> you know, no. no, it's because I, I was thinking of the end of the <laughs> year rather than because I graduated in 2007. Uh, I am good. On Oregon State. Thank you. I am happy to build up a rivalry with Indiana, Illinois, Wisconsin, Nebraska, whatever, Purdue. We will see. But nothing can compare to the memory of how horrible it was going to those back-to-back Oregon State games. The fact that they were back-to-back years really did just add to the misery of it. I did not attend the 2005 game. It was I did not, not yet have misery in... It was Kathy Bates-level misery <laughs> going to those two games. But the Stanbeck game, we were in the East End Zone. I can still remember how depressing we it was. We were not in the East End Zone. No, we were for that one. We were over on the other side in the student section no. that was on the side. I definitely was. No, we were in the, we were in the East End Zone for that one. We I didn't start going student. to the students... I guess you were. That is true. What are you talking about? Maybe right. you were alone in the East End Zone, good sir. But it's like I was over in the student section on the side for both of those games. Well, this last Oregon State game is going to be pretty meaningful in its own right because it's the first matchup ever where both teams are ranked in the top 10, just the fourth matchup. I Ranked in the top 10? Well, you go by the AP poll. Fuck the college football playoff. Wh- who's really ahead cool. of Oregon State in the college football playoff? I don't, by the way? Who cares? It's fucking bullshit. Uh, the last time coming in 2000, that aforementioned uh, season where the Huskies beat Oregon State at home on a last second field goal. Really a terrific game. The Huskies opened one and a half point favorites for this game in Corvallis, but are now two and a half point underdogs Holy at 10 and out. Wow. The betters do not like what they see from this UW team. I think the, well, we'll get to it. Later. Okay. Oregon State, a more balanced team. Uh, they are seventh in offense and FBI efficiency, 27th in defense as compared to 42nd for the Huskies. And not factoring preseason expectations would favor the Beavers in that metric, but some of the other metrics out there, uh, sports references, SRS, have the Huskies much more clearly the better of these two teams. Oregon State's loss at Washington State, one of their two losses, wasn't surprising at the time when WSU was ranked in 4-0. Cooks haven't won since that game. That is wild. Their other loss came 27-24 at Arizona on October 28th, and I can only imagine how embarrassing it would be to only beat Arizona by a touchdown and comfortably lead the entire time. Best win for the Beavs, they beat Utah 21-7 at home, and they are coming off their most lopsided Pac-12 win of the season, beating Stanford 62-17. to uh, DJ Uyunglele playing the best football 
of his career as a fourth-year junior. He didn't average more than 6.8 yards per attempt in two seasons as a starter at Clemson, but it's pushed that to 9.1 this season. His 15.4 yards per completion are most in the Pac-12, seventh nationally. Add in rushing value, Ndui Angalele is 11th in QBR in the nation, just one spot back of reigning Heisman winner Caleb Williams. Uh, No receiver with more than 600 yards, but their top three are all in the top 14 in Pac-12 receiving EPA. Anthony Gold has been particularly dangerous, averaging 18.2 yards per catch. And tight end Jack Velling, which just, I just saw his name, and I was like, yeah, this is their tight end. That's an, that's an Oregon State tight end. We've got Jack Vellian versus Jake Westover in yeah. a battle of tight end names in this one. I mean, they're they're coming off of you when they had Dalton Kincaid, too. He has a team high, eight touchdowns. Uh, Oregon State number three in Pac-12 and rushing EPA per play behind Oregon and USC. Uyunglele drives a lot of that. He's fourth in rushing EPA in the Pac-12, tops among quarterbacks. Running back Damian Martinez ranks ninth, averaging 6.6 yards per carry. But backup to Sean Fenwick is an effective counterweight. They've combined for 12 touchdowns. Also keep an eye on the run game on leading receiver Silas Bolden, who scored twice on runs. The Oregon State defense ranks fourth in the Pac-12 in overall FPI efficiency, fourth in opponent EPA per play on passes. They're fifth, a little bit more vulnerable in runs, although most of the team... Luke Musgrave, by the way. Yeah, I was going to say, Dalton Kincaid is Utah, Utah, right? yes. Uh, Although most of that damage was done by two teams. UCLA ran for 287 yards against Oregon State, and Cal ran for 240, somehow both in losing efforts. Washington State was the only other team to even crack triple digits in rushing yards. The Cougars are also the only team to throw for 300 yards against Oregon State's defense so far, though Noah Fafita was highly efficient in their loss at Arizona. The Beavers have forced a turnover in every game. They're tied for second in the Pac-12 and overall turnovers forced. And Andrew Chatfield leads the way with nine sacks, including six the last three weeks. So this could be the kind of game... I mean, I've loved the way that Dylan Johnson has been running these last couple of weeks. Yeah. It felt like by doing it again against Utah, not as amazing... Obviously, could not match the USC performance, but literally, like, if you were to look at it skill-wise of the defense, it might even have been a better performance against Utah that he had. But the way that Dylan Johnson has been running the ball, coupled with Michael Penix mixed in, I think this could be another week that Dylan Johnson is a real, real factor. I think that would be a great sign for the Huskies. I'm a little surprised at how much... So why why do you think... You said you were going to get to there. Why do you think that betters have been uh, banging the Oregon State line so much? Because this thing we've already talked about. People pay too much attention to the direction things are going and not enough to where they actually are. They had a massive victory last week. And I also think... Well, or, yeah. I also think the other element of it is like people's takeaway from the Utah game was... Ha ha, Tupatala dropped that touchdown at the one yard line. The Huskies were lucky to still win the game. And it wasn't like, I mean, the, you know, as I just said, Oregon State beat Utah more comfortably at home, but that was still a good win for the Huskies. Like, they beat a really good team. Like, it wasn't a, I think it's somehow been lumped into because they've played a bunch of one score games in a row. And it's like, playing one score games against USC and Utah, that's kind of the point. Yeah. That's very different than playing one-score games from against Stanford and Arizona State. I mean, there's still... Agree. Or maybe they were single-digit. I don't know if they were one-score. When was the last time that they didn't play a one-score game? Cal. It's, it's been, been a long time. been a while. And so I think that's kind of where people are coming from. At the same time... But, like, we have... You know what we have that accounts for all of this? We have stats. They were, they <laughs> and also, the stats tell us the Huskies should be favorites. USC as well. Like, I, I think there's a reality of this that 
you could kind of explain all of them individually. And if UW plays the way that UW can play, that statistically they have played, they're a better team than Oregon State. Like, Oregon State hasn't played a truly great game this year. And especially at a particularly high level, I look at it and you're like, it's not necessarily the same as the rest of the teams at a super high level, like who are in that number 11 range. They have some, they don't even really have a good win, do they? Like the, the Utah, Utah one is their good win, but the, the, there's well, nothing. Their, their two hardest games of the exactly. schedule happen to be the final two games of the season. There's nothing that you would look to that you'd be like, oh, wow, Oregon State did that. They're kind of the number 10 team in the country based upon attrition, a little bit. I mean, they're a little lower than FBI efficiency. They're 13th, but of course, the Huskies are 10th in that ranking. <laughs> the, other, the other, by the way, potential difference in this game Huskies special teams continue to be really effective this year. No, Grady Gross, I'm like, damn, you're my dog, Grady Gross. Having a steady kicker, knock on wood, in college is a huge thing. And then the return game, Daniel and Nagata had some pretty impressive returns, kickoff returns on Saturday. Oregon State's fairly average in that 65th. Where does Oregon State's defense rank vis-a-vis Utah? Oh, they're not as good as Utah. Utah's still the best defense in the Pac-12, even after getting fairly torched by Michael Penix Jr. It was like a... Michael Penix Jr., he's had so many games that he's torched teams and hasn't actually played that well. And I think we're still waiting for the week when the Huskies really, really put it together this season. I mean, we're not, because it was the first few weeks of the season. They they did put it together. Like, I know a lot of teams have beaten Michigan State that badly and Boise State. Like, they have a coaching opening because Andy Avalos got fired. Yes. So it's not been a great year for them. But that... Like, you just can't play much better than UW did in some of those but games. But since then, I mean, even, like, the Oregon game, you'd have to look at that and say, like, that was the kind of game that one or two things go differently, and UW wins it by two scores. Although, like, the thing you can say about the Oregon game... They pick up one fourth down, and UW loses. No, it's the, it was the single best win by any school this year. Around the country? Yeah. I mean, the, the top-ranked one-loss exactly. game. Exactly, it has to be true. I, I mean, maybe one of those losses came on the, you know... A team got that win on the road, but is it roasted at home? But was still. Bama at home against Texas? I think they were because I think last year was in Austin. It's it is definitely like it's a little surprising. UW is ranked number five because they are UW. Like that is part of it. If if the everything that everybody says, all the words they say, the close games, all the other no, things. No, it's because of the Arizona State and Stanford thing. I I do believe that. Florida State does not get punished for close games in the way that UW gets punished for close games. This is because They're we are close un- games against like Arizona State is just a bad team. Like we we talked that ourselves bad team into just beat UCLA last week. Yeah, I guess so, so I don't. But I, what was the final score against Utah the week before that? I am telling you right now, it is because they are in Seattle, fucking Washington, and we are not in the heart of college football. Like. It's, I'm talking about the difference between four and five. Because again, you say that they have the best win. Who is Florida State's biggest victory against? What is their, what is their like resume? They're playing in a bad ACC. Florida State just doesn't have a win like that. And we are being punished for it. But they're number I, four in FBI efficiency. And UW got his 10. I think Oregon State is maybe a tad overrated right now. And especially by those betters. I think that Oregon State is a tad overrated. Like, this is still Michael Penix Jr. coming into town. This is still the UW offense. This is the UW offense with a run game that is on fire right now, two weeks in a row. I, I don't know if it was on fire last week. It was very strong. 
against Utah, he what was he at like twenty for one hundred and twenty yards? That is this Utah. That is the run game being on fire against Utah. Like that is a good defense that they did that to. And Michael Penix dealt with a bunch of there were wind factors, there were weather factors. I don't know what things are going to look like in Corvallis this weekend. I did look up tickets to Cor- in Corvallis just to see what it would cost, and they were pretty steep. Really, but, interesting. I mean, it's a tiny stadium. Yeah. So like, what was DJ at? Twenty-three for one hundred and four. That that is a good game. Being over a hundred yards against that Utah defense, uh, I think UW is going to play more aggressive in this game. I think they're going to score points. And I think that if UW is scoring points, it puts so much pressure on the other team. It puts so much pressure on Oregon State, and we've seen it over and over and over again. They were down at the half against Utah. They fought back, and they scored. Like, I I just, it is very hard for me to see them, unless they are playing Oregon on a neutral site, to not be favored in a game. And I think that they're better. And I think that this is the week that they actually put it all together. Well, better be. I mean, this is it. Like, But I'm saying that they put it all together in a way that it's not like they won, but it was weird. I think they can win a, I think they can win a game. I, I, I don't think there's any such thing as a, like we said this about USC, there's no such thing as a bad win at this Oregon State team. No, I'm not saying that there is. But I think, I, I can feel it in my bones that this is the week that UW is just like, Shut the fuck up about us. Like, we are the, we are undefeated for a reason. This isn't a, like, we're scraping by. This isn't, like, the fucking Pittsburgh Steelers. This is a team that is an elite-level team with experienced players who are undefeated, who beat Oregon, and I think they are ready to show people that. I hope you're right. They're an elite offense. And the special teams is pretty strong. Whether the defense is good enough to hold up its end of the bargain against a very good Oregon State offense remains to be seen. It's just a little bit of playmaking, a couple of stops, and they are off. Things, I mean, things yeah, can turn sideways formula, yeah. with, with an offense like that. Uh, so, And I think certainly you want to put... It's the same thing as Utah last week, although it didn't play out this way because UW secondary, deep passes... No, oh, that's the thing that scares problem. me. The I mean, most. we haven't really heard much about Cam Fabiculanin, who played started this game on Saturday, did not play. And Jalen McMillan should be goal. back as well. I like, mean, Jalen McMillan played a limited role, yeah, on Saturday. That is, it's been a little bit underrated that the offense has looked a lot worse since Jalen McMillan got hurt. Uh, I think that's more because of who they've played. I, I mean, look, Stanford, I, fair. I, I don't think that I like. Look, they've still got Roma Dunce and Jalen Polk. They've still got Jeremy Bernard making the, huge catches. Though that think about how deep that offense is. Jaylen I agree, McMillan, but you can only throw to one of those guys at the time. Yeah, but w- if one of them is open, you could throw to that one. And the more players that you have to open up things for Roma Dunze, for open up, open up things for Jalen Polk, to open up things for Jalen McMillan, like it I'm, matters. I mean, it is true that all the games where I said where the they were playing at a high level were where Jalen McMillan was healthy. I think it's a big deal. I I don't know if he's healthy, but having a healthy Jalen McMillan would be a huge, huge deal. I think the safety play is much more important to UW. The offense is fine. The deep passes is what scares me the most. And so putting teams in position where even if they miss one of those, they're not going to throw them over and over and over again, like getting a little lucky occasionally, but just not giving up 40, 50, 60 yard touchdowns is the number one thing that I think they have to avoid. Yeah. All right, percentage chances of victory. For the last time against Oregon State 
ever possibly they'll play Oregon State eventually. I mean, at some point, but it's not going to be for a while, probably. I think it is the same as the Husky or the Seahawks. I think it is sixty-five percent. No, that is way too optimistic. I'm at fifty-five percent. We will see. There's two of these left, <laughs> and hopefully a third. So the, the Huskies just have to win one of their final two to assure themselves a spot in the Pac-12 championship game. But we're not worried about a Pac- Pac-12 championship game spot right now. We are thinking bigger than that. So every game matters in a huge way. I love that this is a top 10 matchup, UW versus Oregon State. I love that it's a chance on for ABC to go out there and prove themselves. This is a primetime slot, 4.30 p.m. Yeah. on ABC. This is going to be a huge one. Can you look up the weather in Corvallis really quick, though? Because right. I, I don't want to say that's going to be a huge factor. I trust the UW run game, but like, I would love a beautiful, crisp day in Corvallis. Just like a nice autumn day. I think Saturday is the one day in Seattle it's supposed to rain, right? Great. If I recall correctly. Well, the the weather in Seattle would never extend all the way down to Oregon. (laughs) Yeah, it's also rainy in in Corvallis as well. Uh, The peak is like the beginning of the game, basically. So Okay. Well, maybe it'll be a Dylan Johnson game, this one. And, and a fair bit of wind, it seems like, as well. Maybe I'm talking myself down to 50% in this game. <laughs> I guess I see what the betters were saying. No, we'll see. On that note. Thanks for listening. Thanks.